Hello and welcome. My guest today is Simran Sandhu, who also goes by Simi. And Simi is an entrepreneur who recently sold his company to Morning Brew. And the reason why I wanted to have Simi on the show was because I've known him for around a year. He's been a good friend of mine. And he's behind the scenes in the operations of building our future. And he doesn't or hasn't gotten a lot of shine because Michael Sakand of episode 206 is the front-facing personality for our future. And so Simi's done a lot behind the scenes on the operations, and it's cool to bring someone to the forefront who doesn't usually get a lot of the shine. In this conversation, we spoke about what it was like to sell the company to Morning Brew, how he has been able to build presence and I recommend you stay for the last 20 minutes of this episode because Simi got real deep on his dad passing away and what his high school counselor meant to him. So I enjoyed this conversation so much because I got to see a side of my friend that I've never really seen before. And I got to learn more about him at a deep level. So I think you'll enjoy this one as well. And if you do, share it with somebody you think will enjoy it too whether that's through Twitter, Instagram, your group chat, it all goes a long way in helping the show grow. And I've been loving seeing all the tweets about your favorite parts in the episode. So keep that up. And now let's get right into the episode with Simi. So I really use my phone here for this podcast, but I wanted to start off with a message that you sent on January 24th, 2021. Hey, Austin, been an avid reader of Morning Brew for a long time, and I enjoy reading your content on Twitter. That said, I would love the opportunity to work slash learn with you. Do you have any interest in having a chief of staff? That was... Two and a half years ago, almost. Two and a half years ago. Flew by. Can you explain that message to people who might not know and what that message means to you today on May 5th, 2023? I can. It's funny. I think about it a lot, which is that point in time when I sent that message, I was a clueless kid just out of college. I was working a nine to five at Big Pharma. And I thought to myself, okay, I haven't had a business that has succeeded just yet. How can I put myself in a position where I can learn from someone who is created something successfully? And to me, Austin and Alex were the two guys who had did something that I wanted to do. And so I took my shot. I was like, you know, this chief of staff thing is like trendy right now. Maybe they'll bite on this. Um, And so I, I threw it out there. And so funny enough, Two and a half years later, they bought our company and I'm effectively in that kind of role where I'm learning from Austin directly. He is my de facto boss. And while I didn't plan for it to go quite that way, things have gone better than I could have expected. It's so interesting how you put a message like that out there to Austin Reef, the Morning Brew CEO at this point, right? That's correct. And it is something that has manifest into reality in two and a half years, but you created the job for yourself. I did. Did you send, did you have a lot of 
fear around sending that message or was that more of like, I'm going to send it to 20, 30, 100 people, something like that? Or was it, this was specific to him or specific to the company? Did you think a lot about it at the time? There were three people that I sent it to and I wasn't worried at all. And the reason was, is because I realized at that point in time, I'm stuck in a certain situation and I want to get out of that and closed mouths just don't get fed. And so if I wanted to change something, I had to do it. What's the worst he would have done, which is effectively what he did, which was ignore it, right? Like, you know, I know, I'm not taking that, you know, to heart. I realize he's very, very busy and life has a funny way of, you know, <laughs> making things work out. So exactly when they're supposed to as well. Exactly. Before that, you had a podcast, which you did over 300 episodes of, and that feels like the foundational part to your story. Why did you keep going past episode 100, 200? Like that is something most people will never do, Mm. do a hundred episodes of a podcast. And so I think there's something there that shows your persistence, your willingness to work and your ability to spot people to recognize. So like, why, why do you do a podcast for so long? I think it was this innate belief I had in the medium itself, right? What I wanted to do at that point in time was create a new way for people to consume news in a way that they were not necessarily, uh, that wasn't necessarily as typical as say a newsletter, right? Because what had happened is I felt I consumed more news than 99% of kids at that point in time. I also recognized that misinformation and, you know, there was a lot of mistrust that was taking place with the news at that point in time. I realized, you know, I'm subscribed to 10 different newsletters, right? Like the solution here can't be another newsletter. What can this be? And so it was at the same time where podcasting was facing this boom. True crime and news were the two biggest categories at the specific point in time. And I did some deep dive into the analytics and I realized that um, I believe it was the daily by the New York Times. They got over two million downloads per, per episode. And I thought to myself, all of this is 25, 30, 35 minutes. What if I created a five minute daily news podcast that was concise, objective, straight to the point, remove the fluff? And I realized that it was going to take a very, very long time, right? Like you can't rush these things. That is effectively the podcast medium. You can grow a very loyal audience, but that doesn't happen overnight. And just like most things worth having in this life, you can't rush them. And so when you look back on those moments, those days, what do you think you did well? And what do you wish you did in the podcast game? I feel like I spent way too much time on the news side and just trying to produce the episode, but I didn't spend as much time on the growth side, right? What I now realize is you can create good content, but you have to focus on distribution as well, right? You, It's not, you just get one and sometimes that happens, right? But that's a little bit more luck and, you know, things just kind of working out, right? But if you really want to be in control, you have to think about both things almost simultaneously. Um, And so that's something that I think I didn't do as well was I was disciplined. I was recording every single night. I was up till 4 a.m., 7 a.m. I would get ready for my day job um, and then rinse and repeat. 
seven to eight o'clock every single night from Monday through Friday or Sunday through Thursday because the episodes were on every business day. Um, but I just didn't save any time for actually growing it. Wow. And what do you think you did well? I think I, I was disciplined. It was very much, I'm going to curate the best information I possibly can. And I'm just going to put my head down. I'm not going to worry too much about the outcome because if I just do it for a long enough time, I'm going to be, I, I'm going to be someplace. What I didn't know what that would look like exactly, but I knew it would be better than where I was at that specific point. And where does the ambition to do that stem from? I had tried to create several businesses in the past. They didn't work out. And the reason was, is I wasn't playing in my circle of confidence, right? I was trying to create a tech business when I had no business creating a tech business, right? I, I didn't have a computer science and degree or engineering or whatever, right? And not to say I can't do those things, right? I've learned, but I spent way too much time in the thinking phase and not enough doing. And so this was a way for me to kind of flip it on its script. I was like, there is no thinking here. It is quite literally doing, right? There are no barriers to entry. This is all effort dependent. And this is very simple, right? At its core. I'm not trying to do anything complex. It's just taking the news, curating it, and doing it every single day, right? Like, and I was like, something will come out of this. It's so fascinating that you recognized that you weren't playing in a, a zone of your own competence. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people who are entrepreneurially minded will start a lot of different things because they don't know what their zone of competence is. I know personally, I started a t-shirt business. I started a, um, a keychain business. I started, you know, I was doing all these random things. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it wasn't communicating with people that I cared about. And like, that's actually what I wanted my life to be around. How did you find your thing? Or do you think you found it? I don't think I've found it just yet. What I have found is something I'm talented in. I don't quite say the passion is just yet there quite yet. What I've recognized is how to monetize off of the specific skill set I've built over the past several years, right? And I'll expand on that. What was right about what I did is people wanted short form content, right? I just didn't choose the right medium, right? And I'm not saying that had I not done it for a few more years, it wouldn't have been more successful than what it was. But what I recognize, and a lot of this credit goes to Michael because he effectively took the business news insights that, you know, I was kind of playing into with my podcast and brought it to TikTok in a more engaging way. And it's so different, right? Like day and night, right? You go from virtually having a few hundred, maybe a few thousand listeners to your podcast to one video being able to do millions of views and you've effectively eclipsed every single podcast you've recorded in one moment, right? One video. Yeah. And so you're talking about Michael Sakand, who is the creator of Our Future and episode 206, I believe, of this podcast. And you guys came together when he had a podcast and That's you right. had a podcast. Yeah. And then you were trading notes. And so how did that relationship and partnership come to be? We were purely friends at this specific point in time. Um, what ended up happening was the University of Michigan wrote an article about Michael and it was this young upshot kid who was interviewing C-suite executives at major companies. I was like, you know what? Let me just shoot him a message. What the hell is going to happen? You know, me and Michael hit it off and I was like, dude, he's hella cocky. Like that was the thing that stood out to me. But I was like, I kind of respect it. Like 
I knew, you know, he had a successful upbringing in the sense that he came from money. His parents were very accomplished and all of this stuff. And I could see that energy feeding into him, um, which is which is really unique. You don't oftentimes see it right with people who grew up in very uh, wealthy uh, upbringings. But he had this drive, this hunger to prove himself. And I really like that about him. And so he ends up switching to TikTok, doing very, very well. Um, switching from podcasting to TikTok. That's correct. And at some point, he was like, you know what? Like, what if we started a CPG business? And so we were thinking about starting a coffee brand called Jet. Um, and so it was supposed to be a 16-ounce black can of coffee, and it was just supposed to be over-caffeinated. It was a pure brand play. And so Michael used his connections on the podcast to get in front of, like, you know, C-suite executives at Pepsi and all these big name people. And they're like, guys, you're going into a very hard space. Like, know what the hell you're doing. And I was like, dude, I don't know if this is the right fucking idea. Why don't we just join up and do something together? Like, I was like, I know what you're doing. And I like totally vibe with this. This is what I wanted to do as well. Why don't we just pair our heads together and go be the next Austin and Alex in our own way? Austin Reef and Alex Lieberman. That's right. From Morning Brew. Yeah. Okay. So then- you set out to achieve a media empire together. Yeah. And was it successful right away? I know you had $300 in the bank yeah. when you took over. Yeah. Successful in the terms of views and distribution, the monetization wasn't there. And so when me and Michael kind of paired up, we were getting a lot of different advice from various people. Also, big like learning lesson in that is like be very careful you take advice from. Even me here sitting sitting here today, not everything is going to be relevant to you and your story. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, but we were getting all of this conflicting advice. Some people were like, "You need to raise. If you can't raise, you will not be competitive." Right? People are going to like blow you by. Raise money. That raise is. money. And other people were like. Look at Vice, look at Vox, look at BuzzFeed. Like, you don't want to raise money. And me and Michael were like, well, you know, if we really want to build this next Waystar Waco succession operation here, we probably need to raise money. We didn't really have a good idea as to what we would do with the money. Like, I'd love to say we did. It was like, okay, we want to raise this much. All right, let's kind of work our way backwards here. And we're like, we'll throw, you know, 100K over here and 200K over here. Um, and along those lines, when we went to go do this, um, we effectively came to this realization that maybe this isn't the right opportunity for us. Like, we should not be raising money. Like, if our sole motivation at this point in time was, you know, this will give us credibility, you know, in the short term, this will make us flush with cash. We can go try and experiment with a bunch of different things. There's not as much intentionality behind that. Sure, you could get the Forbes article, but like, what does that do you? Like, it doesn't really do you all that many favors. So I would say that like success was clear in the terms of, you know, views and distribution, but the monetization hadn't been figured out just yet. And then how do you figure that out? So what ended up happening is we... We're doing well on the advertising side. Um, we locked in big deals with uh, Warby Parker, Shopify, and it really kind of gave us some steam, right? It was like, here are some big use cases. And we really pitched ourselves in a unique way, right? Because a lot of brands at this specific point in time knew they wanted to be on TikTok. They knew they needed to be on YouTube Shorts and Instagram Reels and such. 
but they didn't quite know how to do that, right? It was all about, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of videos with, you know, kids dancing and random shit like this, and it's a little cringe. And so we navigated and, and essentially branded ourselves as the brand safe destination to reach Gen Z. Gen Z business. Gen Z business, yeah. right. And so it was like, oh, we can kind of like calm their, you know, hesitations here. And it's a unique angle that not many uh, people were pitching at this time. But what we realized is it was fickle, right? You could have really good months when it came to advertising and you can have really, really bad months. And thank God, like that was not our only like means of monetization now because like the advertising market is like pretty bad. Um, and so like along that came this agency opportunity and we can dive into that. But that was kind of this really unique opportunity where we didn't really need to raise money anymore because the agency was cash flowing well and we could funnel the money over to do a lot of the media things we wanted to do. Yeah. So this is explained like the storyline of how you got to this point, but like, how are you feeling during this time when it's working sometimes it's not working other times and you're going through this process that all entrepreneurs, it seems like goes, go through when they deal with the highs and lows of figuring out a business there were a lot of uncertain moments where we were like damn are we going about this the right way it was like you really don't know what you don't know and that is one thing i would say we did well we recognize that a lot of people who are young and maybe naive or starting their first business they want to act like they know everything and that's just not the case right even though me and him collectively were very confident people we realized like, okay, we need to just continually test a few different concepts here. And it was like, okay, let's just make ourselves bigger than what we are. Right. And so the idea was like, bring on multiple different creators. Let's go into several different verticals. I even led a vertical at one point in time, our future finance. Right. And like my first video went viral and we was like, we were like, we have something here. Right. And like my one video did got us 17,000 followers or something crazy. Um, and it was my very first video on our future finance and it was like, we know what we're doing, um, which is kind of a funny moment. So yeah, we, we believed in ourselves, but even though we may not have known every step on what we needed to do. But then you felt like, I don't want to be in front of the camera anymore. What that's, was, what was that about? That's right. So I didn't want to be on the camera originally at all, but what I recognized was that there is value in building an audience and people recognizing you, right? Because what I had seen was we'd go to parties and people would come up to Michael, right? And you'd get access to cool events. You'd get access to all these unique opportunities. And I was like, you know what? Like I'm being my own roadblock here, right? Like who cares? Like this is already a proven out model. Like no one's going to come up to me and make fun of me or say something mean or whatever, right? Like those those fears that I had in my mind of getting criticized or someone being like, dude, what the fuck is this kid talking about or getting roasted in the comments? I was like, the benefits outweigh the risks I have or the fears I have in my mind. And so I'm going to just do it and see what happens. And so you did that, but then you decided not to do it later on. Yeah. I mean, I think it just came into the the aspect of like, I didn't want to spread myself too thin because the agency business was doing really well. And so am I the best person when it comes to creating content? No. What I could do better is make more money for our business and create revenue and bring in people whose talent is creating content. So your major skill set you would define as what exactly? 
scaling operations. I would say that I enjoy it because to me, it really does feel like a game. For me, it is, it's not even so much of like, I'm seeking external validation per se. Like I'm not the kind of guy who's like, oh, we did X a hundred thousand on a, on a deal or whatever, like go tweet about it. Right. That's not my style. But the idea of just like, okay, this is one specific roadblock. Let's, let's, let's find our way here. Let's carve this path out and just like getting there. The thrill of that is like unmatched for me. I just like figuring it out. Like cutting through the noise, finding, finding like really unique ways to, to, to connect the dots and, and getting to where I want to be the end position. What's an example of that? I think for us, it was getting acquired. Like the path we took to an acquisition was not anything we planned out. There were probably eight to 10 times throughout the past year where we're like, fuck Michael, I don't think this shit's going to get sold. Like, I don't think we can sell this company. Like there were several different moments, but even though that wasn't the path we had planned out, right? We ended up to this end outcome. And I will say like, this may confuse some folks, right? If you've listened to our journey, but for us, the goalpost had changed as well, right? When we realized the limitations with our business model, which was we didn't own our distribution, advertising was a little bit all over the place. The idea was not to build a standalone media giant anymore. It was to sell and become a part of someone who can de-risk us, right? And so it would have been like a the morning brew thing was the perfect partner for us because we really did fit a hole for them. Um, but even when we changed the goalpost, the path we took to get there was very different than what we were trying to plan out. Yeah. I remember listening to a podcast yeah. you were in where you said it took 11 or 12 months for the acquisition to actually occur. And it's like, oh my God, that's like holding on to a vision for a long time. Were there moments where you were like, I don't want to do this anymore? Or like, I, I don't, in terms of, I don't want to be acquired by Morning Brew. I want to just do my own thing or I want to be sold to a different company. There were several different other companies in the in the mix here. Um, and I may not be able to, to call them out by name, yeah, yeah. but the mistake Michael and I kept making, and this is, <laughs> it's funny to think back on, we'd have really one really, really good call with Morning Brew and we're like, oh yeah, like we'd start celebrating, like this is a done deal now. And then something would come up, we're like, oh shit. And that happened to us like four times where we were just like, <laughs> like we bought in, we're like already imagining, like Michael's thinking about his BMW, like we're just, we're all excited, happy, taking a walk around the neighborhood, just talking about what, what it's good, life is gonna be like after, and it just didn't work out. And so like, that was a big learning for me is nothing is finalized until pen hits the paper and actual documents are signed. That goes for sales, that goes for just about everything. Like the worst thing you could do is have like really, really high expectations and not even get anywhere close to that. Yeah, I, I can only imagine what it must have felt like. And yeah. what what made Morning Brew such a, a partner that made you so excited and so like obviously you had put out there to work with Austin two and a half years prior, but why Morning Brew? They were our role models. This was who we were building the company. Like they were the inspiration for how we wanted to build this company, right? Like it was like they sold a company for 75 plus million dollars to Business Insider. Why can't we do that? Why can't we do it bigger than that? That was the the idea, right? It was like these two young cats who just figured it out. Me and Michael are not any less capable. Why can't we? Um, and so from that standpoint, it was like, okay, there are role models. 
But strategically, it's also a really good fit, right? Because they had newsletters down, so zone distribution, and they were focused on millennials. We had the short from video side down, but we were focused on Gen Z. And naturally, that is going to be the next most important demographic from a monetization standpoint. And so we perfectly kind of fit that piece in the puzzle where you can kind of hit both targets and not have to take a big risk from the brand, right? Like we don't have to play this uh, facade of trying to create another vertical focused on millennials. And they don't have to do that with Gen Z per se. We can be authentically ourselves and it it ends up just being a great partnership. Does it frustrate you that Michael is the face of the brand and when people think of our future, they think of him and you are the unsung hero in many ways and <laughs> you, you are behind the scenes pulling the strings, making the operations happen. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on the show yeah. because I'm like, this dude is doing so much behind the scenes and the world doesn't know and you just need a little more light on you. Well, brother, I appreciate you having me, first of all, right? Probably should have said that in the first 10 seconds we started, but uh, no, I would say that in the beginning, it, it did frustrate me a little bit, but this was because I ha was used to kind of being the main character in all my other ventures. I had never taken the back seat to anyone before. But what I realized is like, this was Michael's inception. He is the one who came who came up with the idea and set up the ground, uh, the foundation, the ground floor for us to actually be successful. What ended up being really interesting is that um, we complement e each other really, really well, even though our personalities are so, so different, right? I'm much more quiet in nature. My uh, Michael's much more loud and, and eccentric in some ways. But after a period of time, I knew that like, if I just keep, doing the the work behind the scenes and I keep doing it to the best of my ability, people will recognize that I bring true value to this operation, right? It is every time people got to know both of us, they were like, I see why it works, right? This is not necessarily just a one man show. It's like you guys do work in conjunction. Um, so yeah, I think it frustrated maybe me in a little bit, but I didn't really have a good reason to, to be frustrated. This was his work. This was something he created from the beginning. And at what point did you feel comfortable knowing that if you just did the work, the praise, or it would actually work? I think as the agency started to scale and we started doing bigger numbers and it became a bigger business than our advertising business. Okay. So explain that for people who might not know, because we kind of skipped over that the agency and switching from advertising to agency. So what ended up happening, how the agency started was not intentional whatsoever. Um, my first million had a contest at that time that whoever made the most viral clip and created the biggest account would win $5,000. Um, and it's really funny because Michael called me while he was walking around his house. Like this is COVID times. And he's like, dude, I'm going to fucking win this thing. And I was like, all right, let's fucking do it then. Um, you had a bit, you weren't together. We, we weren't really together at that point in time. This just was, talking back, ju just talking back and forth. And it was just like ideas back and forth on like how we would go about this. Um, ended up winning the contest, uh, contest and it was like stable money. And it was like, dude, why the hell are we not scaling this out? Like we're already doing this on our own channels. Like we can very much leverage this talent and the, these insights and bring it to enterprise customers who are going to pay us so well. And we don't have to worry about, oh shit, I hope this advertising deal closes or else we're going to get fucked next month. 
Um, and so that ended up being the first piece. Then I ended up winning the entire HubSpot contract. So we got all of their original, you know, shows, uh, did deals with other folks as well. And it just became this opportunity where I realized it's like, okay, now it's not just me doing the operations behind the scenes and keeping, you know, everything, um, above the water but I am actually creating revenue for this business. It was the fact that I could now tangibly see it in numbers that gave me the confidence to be like, I just need to keep at this for long enough, similar to the podcast thing, and people will see it. And how do you source the, the deals? Like, how do you go about creating deals and making them? Because really that's the heart of your skills, I feel like, is connecting people and making deals happen. How do you go about doing are you saying on the advertising front or the agency front? Both. I'm, I'm asking this question as a res because I know there are people who would like to connect with big companies or big podcasts and they want to work with them in some capacity, but they don't find that they can actually connect with them. So how do you go about doing that? And how would you go about doing that today? Maybe if you didn't have a team built out. If I was starting on ground zero, right? I had no credibility. I was very raw in my skill set, the best thing I could do if I was trying to land a client, one, there is nothing wrong with working for free. Build up the case studies, right? Kind of work out the kinks, find out the things that you need to do better at before you approach that client, uh, that your dream client, right? Because the worst thing you want is having that opportunity and not have done the real preparation needed to succeed and then losing out on what it could, what could have been a real successful partnership. So what I would say is work for free, build out the case studies, do really good work, find out, fine tune your processes. And then the biggest cheat code for us back in the day, and not as much anymore because we kind of have the morning brew name behind us. So it's not as much, we don't have to be a scrappy per se with like the credibility is already built in. People want to work with us. Um, but I would create sample clips and just send them, do the free work. And that is how you get people's attention, right? It is like, Hey, love your brand. Look at these two videos I made for you. If you find this interesting, let's have a conversation. 15 minute chat, you down. Um, another cheat code to, to closing deals that I love, right, is creating FOMO. And this was the biggest hack in our business when it was trying to raise money or when it was trying to close big deals. And it was all one line. Um, what I realized is people respect the hustle, but they don't necessarily respect the desperation, right? you can't make it sound like you're so dependent on this deal or this opportunity to sustain your business or your livelihood. And so even when we were raising, it was like, we got one round left. We got one spot left in our round. Let me know if you're down, right? If it was business, it was like, we got one spot left this month and one spot left this quarter. If you want in all good. If not, let's revisit next quarter. Like, I don't really give a shit. Right. And that is like the biggest cheat code for getting people to respond or actually like giving a shit. It's like, oh damn, they must be doing well. Dude, it's so true. Even for this podcast, as yeah. well, I've noticed that as I've gotten bigger and bigger guests, I care about getting other bigger guests less. And because I'm caring less about getting this next guest, they're more likely to come on and agree to the podcast because they could sense it in my approach. It's not a, a long drawn out message. It's just, you know, a few lines of like, yo, 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 what's going on? I've had this person on and I've had this person on. You want to come on? Danny, what was that inflection point for you where you felt like your life had changed because you did something, one specific thing that changed your entire trajectory? Could have been a cold email, could have been 
a connection with someone. Yeah, what I've realized, it's it's not one specific moment. It is the culmination and the buildup of so many. Mm. I will say that from episode 100 to 250, or specifically 243, it was the most difficult. And once I, once I crossed that barrier of like Sam Parr agreeing to come on for episode 243, that, that to me felt like a big milestone because My First Million was my favorite podcast at the time. And for him to come on, recognize me, and it, it was very impactful. And after that, it certainly got easier because I could tap into Sam's network. But the truth is the work is never done. And the truth is it's like, just because you get a big guess, like most recently for me, Andy Fursell, it doesn't mean you can stop. It's like, that's just more of a reason. That means you have to go harder now. And yeah, I think that's been the journey. And what's, what's so cool and interesting about knowing you and being your friend is how you are able to ask such thoughtful and interesting questions. I've noticed that time and time again. And I think that really is part of your skill in closing these deals. What makes you such a great listener and how or when did you realize the importance of asking questions? Well, first off, thank you. Um, I think it was this, I was around a lot of people growing up who just loved to talk, right? And I was like, there's a lot of value in just sitting back and listening and actually thinking and then creating or crafting a response that actually addresses the points the other person is making. So for me, in the same way, it wasn't like a specific moment. It was like this skill that I kind of built throughout childhood and then growing up and and then even in like when I was working my nine to five and in big pharma, right? That was what separated me out from everyone else, right? I was the the youngest senior analyst promoted to my position. And it wasn't like I was kissing ass or like going out of my way. It was just like, sit back, learn, pay attention, do the work behind the scenes, and then do the best job possible based on what I think their true intentions are. That's powerful, man. Yeah. That's really powerful. Is there anything you could give to people as way of tip or a hack to think about becoming a better listener or asking better questions? How can people apply this to their own life as well? Open-ended questions are honestly the the biggest hack, right? Like you don't ever want to ask questions that are just yes and no and let people talk. Like this is, it sounds so simple, but what people want to do is just they're so caught up in that whole they want to be interesting not interested um and they're like so they they feel like if they don't get the word out they're not being heard um and so like someone will be talking 30 to 60 seconds and people's natural inclination is to cut them off so they can get their point out right and it's like no like it's it's okay just let them say their piece and then you can can say what you need to say Uh, it's funny because i think that there's something to there's something to having a still mind or or presence that leads you to be a better listener. Mm. And because if you think about the most energetic or frenetic people, it's like Gary Vaynerchuk. I love Gary Vaynerchuk, but people often say he's not a good listener. And if you go to the YouTube comments, you will see that time and time again, how come this dude's not listening well? It's like there's something to internal peace and presence that leads to someone to be a good listener and calm energy as well. Do you feel that? I do. I mean, I think about the Gary V reference in this case, and he's playing a character of sorts, right? I haven't necessarily met him in person or had a conversation around him, 
but his it's almost like he has to have the answer before people even get to their conclusion right because what's going to happen in that moment where someone stumps him and he doesn't know what to say right and so it's like okay they say what they're what they're trying to say he tries to to deduct some conclusion and he just responds and it's like okay you kind of missed the entire point here but like i guess he sounded articulate and he was passionate about what he's saying so you know cross the cross the check mark there and just keep going yeah it's is there anything you've done to help instill more calmness or more presence into your life i pray a lot i pray a lot and i think the other thing is like over time i've just i've never been one for instant gratification i can wait i'm patient i would say that is one of my biggest strengths i don't need a certain outcome or result immediately i don't need to get rich quick i just need to do the right work and i need to stay on path and trust that with god's will things will work out and they they have up to this point there's not been nothing in my journey where i can say that shouldn't have happened because even those things that I felt slighted or wronged in the moment, they led to some bigger, more unique outcome that I couldn't have planned for myself. Trust that each moment is developing perfectly just the way it is. And if you had got that chief of staff position for Austin in 2021, maybe it would have led to you getting fired three weeks into it because you didn't know what you're doing. Yeah, fired or I would have been the chief of staff at five different companies after I would have been I would have been stuck in a different kind of prison. And not saying like chief of staff is a that's a very great role. If you're young and hustling, like go do that thing. Like it's so funny to me because like we met this guy, Eugenia, last night, and he's Sam's researcher on My First Million. Young hustler. I love these like European, like foreign cats, and I'll tell you why. Like they so there is nothing stopping them in their tracks when they want something they are relentless it doesn't matter what part of the world they're in it doesn't matter what their upbringing was like rich poor whatever there's this innate hunger i don't see that in a lot of americans they just want that they just want it so freaking bad yeah why do you think we've lost that i think we get content i think we get content it is i just want a peaceful life. I guess it also like this is a more nuanced conversation because again, it comes down to like what is their true intention, right? I think for a lot of people, it's like if it's if the, the they're naturally ambitious, right? Like they want wealth for one a specific reason, right? It's external validation, it's accumulation for the sake of buying a big house or a big car. These things can keep people driven, but I my guess is that for most people. Um, abroad they haven't had the natural luxuries that we have begotten we have essentially taken for granted right like we have air conditioning in our houses right like we're not going hungry i mean i spent one summer in india they had no air conditioning there i remember pouring buckets of water over myself when i was sleeping like I, i'd get up because i was just sweating so much and i'd pour buckets of water on myself and i was like so thankful that I was born and I grew up in America because I was like, this is their reality. And even then they were like middle class in India. This isn't even like bottom of the barrel here. So it's probably that if I, if I had to guess. Yeah, man, I think that's a really good, interesting point. How do you, how do we steer the conversation more towards like doing difficult things and, and help people realize how good they have it, but also how much they shouldn't take for granted the opportunity 
that they've been given by living in the United States or in some place where they have air conditioning and internet and running water? It's a really good question. This may sound cheesy, but I think it is a sense of self-reflection. We get caught up so much in the things we don't have. And that takes up so much of our mental real estate and it makes us miserable as people, right? Because we are chasing these material objects in a lot of cases. And it's like, you may have everything, right? You may have, I haven't had kids, but I imagine like, let's use someone as an example, right? Joe has, you know, beautiful kids, beautiful wife. He has a house, he has a great paying job and he's still thinking about the one thing he doesn't have, right? And it's like, no, like you're still in that 1%. You've got it so good, like in, in retrospect. So I think just taking moments and I, I know this narrative is a little overplayed. Like think about the kids in Africa who don't, don't have this, right? Because it's like, you're not seeing those kids. So it's hard to like actually envision what that's like, but just taking moments to say like, damn, like I may not have this one thing, but the rest, like my life's good. I wouldn't trade this for anything in the world, right? And if I don't have that one thing, it's either going to drive me till I do get that one thing or I don't have it for a specific reason, which is like, in my case, I would say like God didn't intend for me to have this one thing or there's something better out there and I just got to trust that it will come eventually. How much do you think marketing plays a role in that of here you have, you need this Rolls Royce to feel happy here. You need this cold plunge to feel happy here. You need the, And it's like. I mean, there's stuff that's good for you, not good for you, stuff that's too much, stuff that's not enough, but it's like, does marketing play a role in that whole thing? It's interesting. I think marketing can be a catalyst of wanting nicer things and you see it, but I actually think that it's not something you would see in a YouTube video or TV or something that is actually driving you for those things. I actually think a lot of people are driven for these material objects based on what other people close to them have, right? If Joe has a, a Porsche, right? Joe's doing so well. I want what Joe has, right? I think it was something interesting. My uncle told me this. My uncle came from uh, a really poor upbringing and then built a very successful construction company in Indianapolis. And he's actually who I learned so much from because I didn't have my own dad in my life. He passed really uh, passed away when I was really young. Um, and what he had said to me was this. He's like, Simran, if, you, if you're driving a Ferrari down the road, you think people want to be you? No. He's like, they just want what you have. And that changed my entire mindset in that moment. It was like, no, no one wants to be this person. That Everyone would love to be themselves. They just want the nicer things. And so I really do think it is like more driven around the people near you versus like some marketing ploy, some ad you see or whatever, just scrolling through IG per se. Yeah, but the people close to you <clears throat> are now greater than ever and further away than ever <laughs> so it's like yeah. the people close to you in mind is like your favorite influencer who's posting about their new yacht or whatever and it's like well now that changes who's close to you and it changes what you actually want is there anyone that specifically makes you feel that way for from someone you follow i think no like, and this is the crazy thing, because I was talking to Seahill Bloom about this. Yeah. Episode 254, I want to say. Good memory, man. I, well, I don't even know if that's correct, but we'll, <laughs> we'll find out. You'll get him scrolling. <laughs> the marketing point. <laughs> so he was saying how Instagram 
promotes a culture of keeping up with the Joneses and how it's it's really hard for him sometimes to see people because he thinks he wants that thing when he sees people have it and gets jealous. <clears throat> and I challenged him on that and I was like, I've never, I don't feel that. And, and I don't feel that. I don't know why I don't feel that. I just feel happy or excited for that person. And it's like, I don't know. Do you feel that? You feel like you look at people and you're like, oh, I want that from that person. I used to be like that. Until? What happened? Until I got more religious. And then I, it kind of dawned on me that I, I was chasing so many things at this point in time. I thought true wealth would be the answer to all my, my life's frustrations with women and all of this other stuff, right? Like I was always the chubby fat kid uh, growing up and I was like, man, if only I was rich, right? I thought that would just like change my entire life. And I was like, that nah, like something innately kind of happened for me to realize like, okay, maybe the value or my true happiness doesn't lie in just like getting the nicer car or having, you know, the, the nicer house or whatever you would want to use in this context. It's almost like, um, like a sense of just content. Like you should do things because you enjoy them. And there is some goal in mind that you may have. But like, don't make it all in one. Like this cannot be what you live for is just for the nice car, right? Like it should be like, oh, it's cool. This is fun. This is like something we can enjoy together with the family or something like that, right? But it should not be like the only thing driving you because I know people like that. I was kind of like that for a time time as well. And it's extremely toxic, right? It is like, I feel like in those moments, what ends up happening and goes back to the expectation thing is because you envision this image in your mind and when you do get those things it never lives up to it yeah when this happens i'll be happy yeah is the it could be for a person like a relationship you want in your life it could be for a business it could be for a podcast if this does this then i will be happy like as if you catch yourself for one moment with that statement it's like you gotta look in the mirror and you gotta really ask yourself why am i not happy in this moment <laughs> If you're not happy with like a podcast that has zero downloads and you're talking to great people, when you're talking to great people and it has a million downloads and you're, you're not happy, you're not going to, there's no difference yeah. in the amount yeah. of exposure or the amount of, and it's true for podcasting, it's true for business, it's true for life, it's true for everything. It's like not, no one thing is going to get you to that place. And you can look at the moments when you don't have the thing as an indication for how you will feel when you get the thing. Do you remember the conversation we had around money and me asking you explicitly? I was like, does money drive you at all? Do you care about the money? You remember what you told me? No, I don't. You were like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't I don't give a shit. If even if I wasn't getting paid a dollar, I would be doing this in yeah. this moment in time. And then I tried to push back and I was like, Okay, you're starting to see success with what you're doing. People recognize it. People understand that. You're a rising star of sorts, right? Like you, you're getting to that point where like, this is truly getting to the next level, right? And so do you think that is why you don't care about money? Because you realize if you just focus on the inputs, the output will happen. You will get wealthy. You will make the money and stuff. And you're like, maybe, possibly, doesn't really matter, right? And so now when I think back on that too, it's like, yeah, just like focus on the day to day, like run a, as as straight of a ship as you can and like 
don't overthink it. Don't worry too much. And again, I feel like I'm saying this over and over, but things will work out. They always do, right? Very rarely is it that you you put in the work, you stay disciplined, you're focused, and things don't 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 go as they should. Well, and it also doesn't even matter if they do or don't because you get value from the actual truth of pursuing that thing. Yes. It doesn't matter if I finish the marathon that I'm training for in December or not. Like I get value from the fact that I'm training for it. The training for it is actually the piece. And think about this, like for people to actually understand this, like think about when you're chasing a goal versus when you actually have the thing. It's like often there's more enjoyment in the chasing of. It's the journey. It's the, it literally is. And, yeah. it's, and until you experience that enough times, you realize that it's like, I could say that, but then you experience it and it's different. And another thing that Drake said recently, or that Morgan Housel quoted Drake saying, was about how every, everyone loves you when you're on the come up, but they don't feel the same love for you when you've made it. And I'm like, damn, do you find that to be true? After being acquired by Morning Brew? Does- People change, for sure. How has, how have- I, uh, if for me, it's funny, I feel like it's been the opposite. Like- People didn't fuck with us as much on the come up. We were just the TikTok guys. We we're just the agency guys. Now it's like, oh shit, they've been validated by Morning Brew. And people treat us differently. The people who would be maybe not give us the time of day or, you know, uh, I, again, people are busy or whatever, right? But there's so much, uh, such a difference in their personality. Suddenly, everyone's nicer. Nicer. Suddenly, I'm funnier uh, than I've ever been. I, I don't, I don't remember being this funny. But suddenly, <laughs> my jokes are hilarious. Oh. So there's like certain things like that, that that change. I played this great game at this thing called Creator Camp, where yeah, yeah. these dudes brought together seventy of creators, entrepreneurs, people building the world in some way. Yeah, and they had us do an improv game and the improv game was a deck of cards and everyone picked out a random card and they held it on their forehead for five to ten minutes and based on your card people would have to treat you how they thought your card would look but you couldn't see it so let's say i had a king people would go around and be like you're the greatest you're the best thing ever (laughs) and let's say you had a two which i had People were like looking the other way, didn't want to associate with me. And it really put in perspective the idea of like, this is happening all the time with status, with the way people are treating other people. And we often don't even realize it. And it's happening at a subconscious level. And so, yeah. Have you felt this? Game aside, have you felt people change the way they associate with you? Now that you are being recognized on a bigger level. Of course. But I don't view it as personal and I don't, it doesn't, it's not something I think twice about unless asked. It's like, it took me two years to book Austin Reef on the podcast. (laughs) I sent him like four messages and DMs. Join the club. (laughs) Austin. (laughs) And it's like, I don't, I know he's a busy guy. I know he's got a lot going on and everything in perfect timing. And so, yeah, people switch up with how they change, but like, who cares? And like, that's part of the game and that's part of the fun. And maybe it's like, both of us haven't made it enough, quote unquote, for the hate to come, 
right? Or for people to really not not get it or for people to try to tear us down. And so, yeah, it's interesting being at, at this stage of the journey. And I'm grateful to have people like you also at this stage of the journey. And it's like, when, when you look at what's going on with the success of our future, when you look at being acquired, the jokes being funnier, Do you ever stop back and realize like, how did this happen? How did, other than the work that you've done, it's like, okay, but you had to get the work ethic from somewhere. And where did that come from? You know, like, and like, do you play back of like the childhood, the A little bit. Situations? Like truly what drove me was I was like, I'm not taking another L. I was like, I've had four business ideas that I've tried to start before this. None of them worked. I was like, I cannot take another L. I was like, if this business goes to zero, it goes to zero. But I refuse to call it quits early. Wow. It was a, per- it was more personal. I was like, in retrospect, if you had told me that the first company I would sell is in social media, in influencer marketing, that world, I'd have laughed, right? But I chose it. I made my decision, and I was going to see it through. I was not going to be like the podcast and quit early. It wasn't going to be like my other college ideas where I just started it. It got to, it's funny. I remember this moment. Um, My college friends, you know, they would make fun of me, not to my face. They would do it behind my backs and then my college roommate would tell me. Um, And it was like, you know, Simran starts so many businesses and not one of them has worked. I've yet to see him turn a dingle a single dollar over. And... He told me that in the the essence of not to hurt my feelings, but just make me aware, which I really, really appreciated because I know that's hard for him. And so it's funny when I then talk to those same friends, right? They're like, Simran, I always believed in you. <laughs> Simran, I'm surprised you did it so quickly. What is this? This is, you've only been in our future for what, a year and a half, two years? You're, you're so different. Like, like. I, I always had this feeling at Wabash that like Simran was going to make it. Like you're you're different from the rest of the class. I was like, oh, really? Same kids. Same kids. Same kids. Totally changed up. Yeah. And my college roommate and I'll joke now, right? And I'll tell him, I'll be like, the same person that said this in this moment, they were like, can't even turn a dollar around to now being like, I always believed in you. And we'll just laugh because he's in the world of politics and he's like, yeah, that's just like, that is the reality of it. And to your point, you can't necessarily be sour because that that will continue to happen as we continue to become more successful in our own crafts and our own, uh, what our own vision of success is. But it's funny to have experienced that so early because it does change my perspective of how I approach things moving forward. I, for me, now I, I... With our future, like a, it's one of those things where I no longer have this thing where I need to prove people wrong. I've already done it once. I don't have to do it this way. I don't like next time around. If I truly don't like the business, I don't. I don't have to stay, right? Like I'm still very much driven, and I want to see things through. But I don't have to prove anyone wrong. I've already. I've already did it once, and there that in itself makes me way more confident than I was, say, this time last year. Yeah, it's funny. What sticks out to me about that is the commitment that you made the commitment to yourself of saying, I am going to win at this. I, it sounds like you said, 
I will die trying or I will make this work. And all of the best things that have happened to me in my life have happened because I said, I'm going to die trying or this will work. And also about, about the kids, it's like people can't predict the future. I can't predict the future. You can't predict the future. What we think will happen is often so incorrect about people, about events, about different things in life. Like we're just bad at predicting. And so it's important to keep that in mind. If there are a person or people in your life right now who are saying, nah, what's going on? This isn't it. It's like, those will be the people that are like, you did a great job. Great. Because people just don't know. And they cling to their own insecurities when the unknown gets presented to them. Sometimes you just have to truly burn the bridge. It is like there is no plan B. I refuse to go back to Eli Lilly. I will not go back to to healthcare. I'm not taking a job. This is it. This is it. What I know now is we ha- are making money. There's no reason why that need like why that should ever stop, right? Even if our advertising business line you know, kind of hit the shitter. We'll figure something else out, yeah. right? It It is one of those things where once you figure it out once, it truly does, it's a game changer, right? Like, I don't know, you know, for you, it may have been the one big guest that you had always wanted, right? Or it was making your first dollar from podcasting and saying like, I fucking did it. Like this, this is, I can do it, right? Like it may not always be fun. I may have to eat a lot of shit along the way, but if I stay with it long enough, it'll work out. Yeah, it's like the goal for everyone should be to get to the point in their own journey or their own habit where the veil gets unlifted. Meaning, it's like you meditate for 90 days and you see how you look at the world differently. And then you're like, oh, oh, okay. I understand the value of what I just did. Or, oh, I've been building this business. And you see the value that you've created for a company. You're like, oh, I see what I just did. And I can do that again. It's like the purpose of doing things that are good for you are to get to the point when you can actually see the results so that you can go back to that habit more and so that the veil gets unlifted of a new reality. I agree. Do you... Huh. It's funny. Like I, I'm sitting here thinking about what that new reality should be or what it needs to be. Do you think everyone needs to have some kind of intentionality when they're pursuing something? Can it truly just be like, I I don't really know what I want. I'm just going to explore this and see what happens. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like think about like people who travel and backpack through Europe or something. Yeah. They're just exploring, seeing what happens. And maybe they, they have an intention for the trip or maybe they don't. And then it's like, oh, wow, now I see different cultures. Now I see how they operate. Now I see a new perspective on my own culture that I came from. Yeah, I mean, like you can, you don't need intentionality. And when you're exploring something new, like that's the part of exploring that's fun. I will say some of my biggest breakthroughs have been in in moments where there wasn't an end goal in mind, which is funny if you think about it, right? Like something will click or some new idea will form and it can truly just like change your entri- entire trajectory if you let it, right? And I, I just think those those moments are, it's almost like a, a feeling of serendipity, right? Like, oh man, 
like light bulb just went off. Yeah, like meditation. I don't do it with yeah. any aim and get the best ideas in meditation. It's like taking a shower. You don't take a shower with any aim, but a <laughs> lot of people can credit a lot of amazing ideas from just taking a shower. So yeah, it's sometimes it, an idea just comes. W- were there any specific moments for you where you're like, oh my God, like this thing that I did without intention led to this result that helped change my life in some magical way? I, when I was, when I was younger, um, like I said, my dad had passed away. I didn't really have like a role model at that specific point in time because my mom didn't really speak English very well. Um, and like I had a younger brother, the onus kind of fell on me, right? It was like to kind of figure out our family situation. And luckily your dad had put us in a good spot, but like, I didn't really have like, a you know, like I didn't know the answers then. And, you know, my mom had told me about this uncle that I had. Um, and he's like, you know, you should talk to him. Like you, you should, you should just get closer to him and, and just kind of see like, maybe he can be that bigger in your life. Right. Like she kind of pushed me in that direction. And like at that point in time, I didn't really know that he was very successful and like he was doing well for himself. It was very much just like a, like truly just naive, innocent, like, I just want to get to know him and see what comes out of this. My uncle has changed my life in more ways than I can think. He, the amount of things I've learned and it all started from this, like 100%, like, man, I just want to get to know him. Like it, and like, see what, what comes out of that. Like I was expecting like just a family connection, but the business learnings have been second to none. He's taken me everywhere. It's like, business meetings I've got to go with him, uh, go to him with certain strategies that he's playing out for his own businesses. I've been able to been in the room and see what he thinks, how he approaches it, how he talks to team members. And that was what set my own foundation. Um, I didn't go into that with any kind of intentionality, but those learnings that I, I, I got from him. And it's funny because he's in such a different line of work. He's in blue collar as you can get. Like, and I'm as white collar as you can get. I don't leave my freaking office chair for like 10 hours a day. Right. But there's so many transferable skills there. So I would attribute a lot of that to him because yeah, like I, I didn't know what was going to come out of that. And, and truly it, it was a big moment for me just in my journey. Wow. That's beautiful. When you said your dad passed away when you were young, how did that affect you? (laughs) I think the way my, so my dad had a really interesting journey, right? Like, so similar to the immigrant hustle, he was dirt poor. His parents shipped him off to Libya when he was 18 years old. And he worked like backbreaking jobs to make send money back to the family. Somehow scraps his way over to the, to America, um, and builds a really good life for our family. Like, owned several gas stations, really playing into the stereotype here, but we were, <laughs> he was doing really well. Um, and I think if I'm being honest with myself, I would not have been nearly as driven as I am now. I think I actually could see myself like, 
I could see myself just like partying my life away had had I had him in my life because I would have always had that, uh, you know, that that safety net, that blanket that like dad's going to take care, Tara, care of us. I'll just go into the family business. I'm good. I didn't have that option. My mom was depressed most of like my uh, my childhood. Um, it was it was pretty wild when I look back on it. My brother didn't know the difference of like what was going on. And so I was like this all depends on me it was funny because at that moment in time um indian family members are like they kind of all backed away my dad had this magnetic presence um he was the successful indian man in the family who like everyone respected everyone wanted to be around people would ask him for money i still remember being like five or six years old and people would ask for money and would give them money and um after he had passed away, everyone dispersed, like everyone had left. And it was like that learning moment for me very young that like when things are going your way, everyone wants to be around you. But when you hit those rough patches, everyone clears, clears the field. And that left a moment on me. I, I could see just like how helpless I felt in that moment because no one took, took me seriously. I was just this young kid. Like my mom didn't know, like, English that well my brother was even younger than I was and I was like that was a big driving factor for me at that point in time it was like I never want to feel like this again so helpless I I want to be so successful that I essentially create so much uh you know financial freedom for my own family and and give them so such a sense of security that my kids will never have to go through this if you know for some reason something was to happen to me and that was one of one of the biggest things for me as well. I just saw how family and friends, you know, treated us in that moment of like uh, a rough time or that weakness. Um, yeah. And that was that was crazy for me. That is something I still think about to this day. Well, I have a lot of lot of thoughts on this. So one thing is you could see the the magnetic personality that you have and you could see where it comes from. When you say that about your dad, it's so you really are. You really just bring people in. And so it's incredible that that seems like to be a genetic gift. And I'm sure something you've worked on, but it's like, it is, it's like comes through. I'm like, I got chills throughout my body when you said that. I'm like, oh my God, Simi's just that. And then the other thing is like, I could see why it upsets you so much when you see the switch up from people. When you see the, the college friends of yours who were talking shit about you behind your back and now they're congratulating you it's like oh that is the same situation that happened when your friends and family when you were young they switched up on you and you're like oh i've seen this but i will my pushback to this is like there are people who will be with you in good times and bad and don't lose hope of that and trust me bro i'm one of those people for you thank I'm, you brother. i'm here as i am for you seriously and and it's like yeah just make sure you don't lose hope of that and you don't because that's what real love is people who have your back in good times and in bad times and especially in bad times and they're hard to come by so when you do find those people you yeah. cannot let go it's just funny to me because when i was young i saw this for myself i knew one day this would happen I knew one day I would be successful. I didn't know if it was going to be business or what. I just knew I would be successful with my own right. Um, I would be 
in a financial position where I was no longer dependent on anyone, right? And I knew people would treat me differently. It's funny, when I, we had sold, um, my mom had sent you know the, some of the press articles to, to family or whatever. They call in congratulating, right? It was the same thing, right? Because now they see me, to your point, as like uh, a newer version of my dad in a lot of ways. And so they're like trying to latch on because like in some ways, maybe it, it feels like a like I'm a mule ticket for them in the same way my dad was for them. Right. Um, so it's it's I'm grateful to be in a position where like they now think of me in this way, because that means what I had imagined for myself. I'm on the track. That is the, the things I'm doing. But in some ways it did. It took out a lot of, I, I would say like it, it really made me mature. It made me more mature than I should have been at a younger age. Like I don't truly feel like I enjoyed my childhood the same way younger kids did. I felt like I had the burden of the world on my shoulders um, in that like I had to go do something about it. And in those moments, you just like, you're like, I don't know that much. Like, what can I actually do? Right. Like those moments of self-doubt come. And so, you know. Over time, again, that was seven years old to now 24. It took 15 plus years to see what I had envisioned for myself, right? To see that come to life, right? And even in that is why I don't really get into these moments of like instant gratification because I know it takes time. It truly takes time. Is there ever been a moment for you, Danny, where you wanted something for yourself or you envisioned something for yourself and you said you really had to maybe fight the inner urge of like rushing to this outcome or getting to a point where it's like man this is just going to take a lot longer and i have to be patient maybe that is now with this podcast right maybe that is is that thing for you but is there anything maybe work aside in your personal life where you felt that way yeah for me it was 75 hard 75 hard. When I was doing 75 hard, I'm like, I could do all these tasks, but I'm still going to have to do them tomorrow. Mm. And it's still going to happen the next day and the next day. And it's like, oh, that's what life is. That's what living a successful life is. It's not something that just make a bunch of money right away, which is what I did in my first business. Six months, I'd made it, you know, like I had a, a money printer. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's like, oh it's not actually, that's not where the results and that's not where sustained success comes from. Sustained success goes from doing your daily tasks every day and then every day again and then every day and then every day and then you're like, oh, this, this kind of sucks, but this is kind of enjoyable because I know I'm doing what other people won't do so I will get the results that other people won't. They won't. And so you transfer that to meditation, you transfer that to running now, you transfer that to the podcast and it's like, oh, it's all the same thing. And so the quicker you can learn this lesson, the more time you save in your own life with your own shit. So I, no one forced me. No one, no one told me I had to do 75 hard. I just realized I wasn't disciplined. I realized I was too instant gratification E and thus I couldn't get what I wanted, which was fulfillment, happiness at a deep level. And so you had it forced upon you, which that sucks. Like that is in the worst way, but you, you did learn, you know, one of the most important lessons there is to learn. With that context, it makes so much sense now 
what that moment must have been when you truly did meet Andy and got to interview him. I saw the videos. I supported, of course, and was very happy. But now I realize because it was you had gone through the program that had, in a way, invoked a certain sense of discipline, maybe changed your POV on life, your approach, how you actually went about the things you were doing. And then seeing the person and actually connecting with them one-on-one to the person who kind of inspired a lot of this for you must have been an amazing moment. It was. Who is that person for you where if you got a chance to speak to them, shake their hand, you would say, you've affected my life so much and I can't thank you enough. And for them, if they were to recognize you in that moment, who would that be for you of being like, you're great at business or you're great at what you do. I would probably say my high school counselor. He pushed me to go to Wabash College, some small ass school in middle of Hicktown, Indiana, 800 kids total. One of all, one of three all male schools in the country. Super funny. I walked in and I, I go to Mr. Shelbourne and I say, this is the life I want for myself. Um, how do I get there? What school is going to help me do that? Um, like, have you ever heard of Wabash? I was like, nah, like, well, what is Wabash? Like, it's a really small school. I'd never heard of this. He's like, go take a visit. He's like, tell me what you think. I go to Wabash College, and at this point in time, I hadn't done any research. Like, I, I just showed up, right? Like, with me and my mom. They're like, yeah, this is an all-male school, like, and all this stuff. And I was like, dude, he has to be fucking with me. Like, what is he trying to say? Like, I thought he was like, <laughs> I was in that moment, like, yo, like, he did me so dirty. Like, <laughs> I'm at this random ass school. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, you know, they're like, they had male cheerleaders, of course, and all this other stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the people really uptight, the students, they're like, Wabash always fights. That was their logo and their, their slogan. And, um, these people were seriously bought in and I'm like, I don't fucking get it. Uh, so I go back and I'm like, Mr. Shelbourne, like, I don't know why you sent me there. That was like a complete waste of my time. And he's like, did you see how focused they were? Did you see how driven everyone was for their respective goals? Did you see that there were no distractions? Everyone worked really hard in the week and then they had fun on the weekends. Think on that, sleep on it. And I was like, okay. So went back home and I was like, you know, he's so right. Like, like I keep talking about wanting to be this really successful person but i have to do the work now i have to make the sacrifices i for me i can't go to a big party school and get absorbed in that culture i need to be unique and in my case being unique meant uh just totally doing something so different every one of my friends questioned my decision they're like why are you going to wabash that's the all-male school what the hell are you doing like you're not gonna have any fun there i was like that is the point like, I don't want to have fun. I want to do the work. Um, and so he is who I would give that credit to. Um, because 
he knew what I actually needed. And he realized that like to steer me in that direction, he was going to have to. It's funny. Now I, I talked to him recently and I was like, Mr. Showborn, like, thank you so much because they Wabash had made um, a profile on me after the sale. I saw linked below. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and he's like, I'm so glad things have worked out. And I was like, Mr. Shelbourne, you get all of the credit. I would not have done this with you without you. And he tells me, like, Simran, you were the only kid I recommended to go to Wabash, like in, you know, in your class. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. That one conversation just totally changed my life. Yeah. I don't want to have fun. I want to do the work. I want to do the work. That is a, the statement we are closing this podcast on. I like to end these podcasts with challenges, challenges for people. Let someone know where they should take this conversation and do something in their own life with the information we've given. Does a challenge come to mind from everything we've talked about or something we haven't covered yet? I challenge everyone to take one calculated risk. Some idea that you've been thinking about something you wish you could be doing and craft a little bit of time, maybe some money if that's what's required and spend a few hours doing it. You don't have to leave your job. You don't have to leave school. You don't have to sacrifice or compromise on what you're doing, but actually take the time and energy and just devote a few hours and see what that does for you. It can change your entire life. It could be that side hobby that you didn't know could turn into a business that could replace your income you're making from your job. And, you know, six months later, watch where you might be. Could be a podcast, could be anything. Take that calculated risk, do the thing you really want to do. Love that so much. Thank you so much for your time. Brother, thank you for having me. This was a really special conversation. We went to deep places that I... I haven't learned. I didn't know being your friend. I slept on your couch and I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> and You're welcome anytime. <laughs> and um, yeah, no, it's cool to go to a place where I didn't know these things about you. And I'm excited that, and I'm grateful that you were willing to talk about them on this podcast. Really special, really special conversation. And I'm really grateful for you. And before we close, I want to say th- one thing. You guys get to see the public version of dating Miranda on this po- on this podcast. I shit you not, he is like this in person. He is one of the most authentic, genuine people you can meet in real life. And I wish everyone has a buddy like Danny because truly they're there for the for the long haul. Seriously. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. Your Twitter linked below, your LinkedIn linked below as well. Anywhere else we should send people? Ah, Twitter's and, Twitter and LinkedIn. If you're in Austin, Texas, give us a shout. Come say what's up. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Please do. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, brother.